1: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gifts of Freedom. And today's sponsor of the show is Audibleville.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to audio books whenever and wherever you want. In fact, you can get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial. Again, support the gift of freedom uh, by going to audiblepodcast.com back, uh, backslash Black history. We're going to be reading from William Lauren Katz's book, Breaking the Chain, Chapter One. The book is narrated by Peter Francis James, and uh, we will be getting to that book shortly, or to the reading here shortly. And uh, Dr. Katz, why don't you uh, introduce the preface for us to this, what we're going Sure. Th- this is a book called breaking the chains african-american slave resistance which i wrote in response to my work and all of my research on slavery and finding that the whole story of resistance was left out and the preface that we're now going to hear, being read by actor peter francis james who has recorded such famous books as the bible native son and black boy by richard wright and so on uh, with talks to the origin of the book and the importance of the issue of slave resistance so maybe we should get right into that preface now
0: introduction heroic men and women crowd the pages of US history and punctuate its major events defiant minutemen at Concord Bridge brave pioneers plunging into the wilderness intrepid marines at Wake Island refusing to surrender, daring astronauts. Africans who arrived here on slave ships have not been part of this glorious heritage. When American courage is celebrated, slaves are left out. The story of their heroism has not often been told because history was recorded by those who sold, owned, or profited from their labor. To justify their profits from bondage, Masters invented useful tales. They insisted Africans were an inferior breed who benefited from the culture of their European and Christian owners. Vice President John C. Calhoun, a famous South Carolina master, said bondage made Africans so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. To excuse kidnapping Africans from their families and homeland, Virginia planter George Fitzhugh insisted slaves love their master and his family, and the attachment is reciprocated. Fitzhugh and Calhoun claimed Africans in slavery not only enjoyed hard work in the hot sun, but were happier than any other laborers in the world. To justify enslavement, masters bent history, truth, and the Bible to their purposes. They also created their own scientific evidence Dr. Samuel Cartwright of the University of Louisiana said blacks consume less oxygen than the white and this fact thus makes it a mercy and a blessing to Negroes to have persons in authority set over them to provide and take care of them Central to the slaveholders' reasoning was the lie that Africans willingly accepted slavery and rejected rebellion. Dr. Cartwright claimed there had never been an insurrection against slaveholder rule. When slaves tried to escape, the doctor called it draptomania, or the disease causing Negroes to run away. When blacks rebelled, sabotaged production, and fought white masters and overseers, it was dysthesia ethiopica a mental disorder, peculiar to Africans. The lives of slaveholders did not die quickly or easily. In 1863, after thousands of blacks had fled plantations to fight for liberty in the Civil War, Confederate President Jefferson Davis still called slaves peaceful and contented laborers. The Civil War ended slavery, but scholars and textbook writers carried on the planter's view of the happy, dull, docile slave. An ex-Confederate soldier, John W. Burgess, became a noted historian at Columbia University. He influenced generations of scholars with his views that African Americans were inferior to whites and content under slavery. Thus, the slave owner's version of slave life had a lasting impact on historians from the North and South. Scholar William E. Woodward wrote that African-Americans were the only people in history emancipated without any effort of their own. And two of this country's most liberal and famous historians, Alan Nevins and Henry Steele Commager, wrote college texts that emphasized slaves were attached to their masters, well cared for, and apparently, happy. The story of Dred Scott illustrates the way slaves were presented as pathetic stereotypes. Because of the Supreme Court case that bears his name, Scott has always been the one black figure in U.S. history courses. But little is said about him as a person, that he saw his first wife and two children sold away, that he married Harriet and they had two children, Eliza and Lizzie, whom he desperately wanted to live in freedom. Historians wrote about a Dred Scott who was lazy and shiftless, Some even ridiculed him as a carefree, stupid man with no real interest in freedom. In American Heritage, famous Civil War historian Bruce Catton said Scott was a man without energy and attributed to Scott such words as his case was a heap of trouble and he was amazed at all de fuss de made dar in Washington. In fact, Scott shouldered huge burdens to lift slavery from his family. For a time, he escaped to the Lucas Swamps outside St. Louis, a haven for slave runaways. Then he was recaptured and brought back. After that, he mainly spent time working at extra jobs, raising cash to purchase his family's liberty. When his owner, Mrs. Emerson, turned down the $300 he had saved, Scott hired a lawyer ...and brought his case before Judge Crum in St. Louis. Despite rapidly deteriorating health... ...and the onset of old age... ...Scott pursued this legal effort for ten years and ten months. Along the way, he received some financial help from anti-slavery whites. Though the Supreme Court ruled against the Scots... ...a new master soon freed them. The Scots worked in St. Louis... ...dread as a porter at Barnum's Hotel and Harriet running a laundry business, with Dredd helping her out after hours. The real Scott story turns out to be one of courage and endurance by a family committed to liberty. But they never really had their day in court, because they faced an all-white Supreme Court stacked against them. Then later scholars emphasize this distorted, stereotyped image. Such fantasies about slaves reached generations of teachers, textbook authors, and Hollywood writers. Their words and images penetrated millions of young U.S. minds. The 7th and 8th graders who entered my New York City classroom in the 1950s knew their slavery lessons cold. Slaves didn't really mind it, said one, because it wasn't so bad. If they didn't like it, they would have revolted, said another. Slavery was really like a kind of social security, said a third. No one seemed to disagree with these views that they had been taught in elementary school. To those reared on this version, it seemed un-American to depict the evils of slavery and disloyal to talk about African-American people fighting for freedom against whites. Omitting, neglecting, or suppressing the facts of slave defiance became a lasting American tradition, the truth about bondage was always available. Before the Emancipation Proclamation, slave men and women escaped and wrote more than 100 autobiographies and published 17 newspapers. Anti-slavery or abolitionist publications of the 19th century bulge with black and white testimony exposing the evils of bondage. 6,000 pages of the recollections of ex-slaves are on file at the Library of Congress and hundreds of other interviews are kept at Fisk University. Most scholars have ignored this mountain of evidence. Some flatly said that while those who profited from slavery could be objective, those who suffered from it lacked powers of observation or sufficient detachment to judge fairly. Slave testimony reveals a heritage of rebelliousness stretching from the kidnappings in Africa to the end of the Civil War, And this American story adds a proud new dimension to the world's struggle for freedom. Africans demonstrated endurance, resilience, and bravery in the face of the most wretched conditions in the New World. They were among the first Americans to die for the great ideal that all are created free and equal. Today, the story of slave resistance can be described with a high degree of accuracy through accounts left by the men, women, and children held in bondage, and their relatives and friends. I have chosen to construct this book largely based on their testimony, and I have also included the recollections of white slaveholders and their families, foreign visitors, military and government reports, newspapers, and legal records. Because this book is short and focuses on the black contribution to emancipation, white participation since it appears in many other books, is indicated but not fully examined. It was the resistance of the slaves that each step of the way galvanized whites and free blacks into action. All quotations are by blacks, slave or free, unless otherwise identified. Some African-American narrators, such as Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, have recently found their place in school courses, But other witnesses are largely unknown. Some left scant identification in the historical record, except a few words and a first or last name. Others left even less, a nickname, a state, a date. In telling their stories, some did not wish to give their name. More often, the man or woman who took down their words did not bother to ask for one. I have included whatever information is known of these people, whose surviving words bear witness to our common history. William Lauren Katz Fighting Bondage on Land and Sea Chapter One The First Rebels Slavery in the New World began the day Christopher Columbus landed. I took some of the natives by force, the explorer wrote in his diary on October 12, 1492. In 1498, British explorer John Cabot seized three Native Americans. By 1524, when Giovanni da Verrazzano arrived, he found Native Americans who are suspicious hostile, and desirous of obtaining steel implements for defense against kidnappers who frequent the coast to seize and transport them to the Spanish islands of the West Indies. From Canada to Florida, forced Indian labor became a thriving European business in North America. Colonizing powers seized Indians and battled each other for domination of a continent. In the next century and a half, International wars engulfed the Americas. When Native American nations along the Atlantic coast were attacked by white settlers, their males were killed, and their widows and orphans were rounded up for sale or exchange. The French in the Ohio Valley, Louisiana Territory, and Canada became active traders. In 1684, King Louis XIV of France announced, These savages are strong and robust and ordered that Iroquois captives be made to serve on French vessels. In Canada, French officials enslaved Pawnees, and along the Mississippi Valley, they kidnapped the Natchez. In British America, the trade in Indians shaped colonial diplomatic, political, and economic policies. The money made by British slavers helped colonial commerce and filled colonial treasuries. Captive Indians became forced apprentices in Connecticut. They were given as pay and as bonuses to soldiers in Virginia and Massachusetts. In Rhode Island, Maryland, North Carolina, and South Carolina, they became the leading source of colonial revenue. The trade in Indian slaves, at first run by speculators, soon spread to governors, businessmen, and aristocrats. In 1712, North Carolina's Governor Hyde expressed his pleasure with the great advantage that may be made of slaves, there being many hundreds of them, women and children. Three years later, South Carolina missionary the Reverend M. Johnson said, our military men were so desirous to enrich themselves by taking all the Indians slaves. Enslaving natives was not without severe problems, Relatives of the captured counter-attacked or offered refuge to runaways. Indians were able to escape to the forests and hills they knew better than their masters. Relatives of those kidnapped living in heavily armed neighboring nations gave British frontier families nervous and sleepless nights. The colonists, convinced that this slave-taking threatened their lives, began to seek changes. Some demanded this slavery stop. Others insisted that local Indian captives be sold or shipped far from their homeland. Finally, colonial legislatures passed laws for transportation of seized Indians to distant lands. This would be the first, but not the last time, that resistance to the slave system would alter the rules governing the business. Long before they seized Africans... Europeans had learned it is best to keep slaves far from their homes and natural allies. Indians taken in New England were sent to the West Indies. Those seized in the South were traded in the Caribbean, New England, or the Middle Colonies. In 1707, the governor and council of South Carolina listed Boston, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New York, and Virginia among places we export Indian slaves. Indian slavery began to decline. Native people died of disease and overwork. Nations retreated into the wilderness to fight. Condemnation of Indian slavery in the Spanish colonies by Bishop Bartolome Las Casas in 1514 and his suggestion of African labor led traders increasingly to a new source. By the late 1600s, the vast majority of American slaves were Africans a people brought 3,000 miles from home had no one to turn to. Without others in the Americas who looked like them, Africans who fled their chains could easily be tracked and recaptured. No escape, no friends, and no hope, reasoned Europeans, would soon make frightened, discouraged Africans accept their lot. Traders felt they had found a unique solution. the first Africans were led aboard ships that celebrated Christianity gift of God, Jesus, Mary they were packed into vessels named for admired friends Elizabeth, Robert, William Judith, Little George, Young Hero Don Carlos. They sailed on ships that celebrated great virtues justice, hope, liberty fortune, charity, integrity, friendship, good intent. Divided from others of their nation, shackled hand and foot to people who did not speak their language, they spent seven to eight weeks on the stormy Atlantic. Kings, queens, merchants, nobles, and bankers made huge profits from the voyages. But the hard and heartless work was carried out by smiling or mean-spirited captains and underpaid, mistreated crews. Some officers tried to keep the Africans healthy and alive to make the most money from them. Others packed Africans into every corner of their tiny ships. Though many would die this way, they calculated the many survivors would still ensure profits. Gustavus Vassa described his confinement, the closeness of the place, And the heat of the climate, added to the number in the ship, which was so crowded that each had scarcely room to turn himself, almost suffocated us. Dr. Falconbridge, a ship surgeon, reported to Parliament how he wedged them in. They had not so much room as a man in his coffin, either in length or breadth. But when Dr. Falconbridge crawled among the chain men, they bit and pinched him. It was commonly said of slave ships... You could smell them five miles downwind. Some pious officers brought Africans on deck each day for Christian worship services or the singing of psalms. Captain John Hawkins' sailing orders were, Serve God daily, love one another, preserve your victuals, beware of fire, and keep good company. In 1562, Hawkins launched the English slave trade with a few small ships. 100 crewmen, and 300 captured African men, women, and children. Queen Elizabeth first denounced his effort and said it was detestable and would call down vengeance from heaven. But after she saw Captain Hawkins' huge profit, she became a major shareholder in his next African expedition. The right to supply Spain's American colonies with slaves was a prize eagerly sought by businessmen from Holland, France, Denmark, England, Prussia, Spain, and Portugal. In 1713, the English gained it by treaty. A British scholar reported that the slave trade became the daily bread of the most considerable part of British manufacturers. Money from this trade helped finance the British Industrial Revolution and built the ports of Bristol and Liverpool. There was not a brick in the city, but was cemented with the blood of a slave, said a Bristol resident. Slave traders became welcome guests in churches, palaces, and parliaments. In 1757, a British slave merchant returned home after eleven years to find he had many friends, was welcomed at every great man's house, and was called the African Gentleman. He heard his adventures on the high seas compared to Columbus's expedition. European traders carried off Africa's strongest sons and daughters. With bribes and guns, they convinced the chiefs of African villages to sell their prisoners and to organize manhunting expeditions. Europeans skillfully played on local rivalries in an Africa as divided as Europe was. The foreigners promised to pay handsomely for the captives. Europeans exploited disputes among African nations and fostered rivalries between kings. Soon, African nations were pitted against one another in wars to turn neighbors into slaves. About a third of the men, women, and children captured in the slave wars died on the long trip that brought them from Africa's interior to the foreign ships at the coast. Others died while the ships swayed at anchor off the coast. And still others died in the long voyage across the Atlantic. The captives once had lived and worked in happy families. They were diamond, gold, and iron miners, weavers, or potters. Many, from along the coast or lakes, fished for a living. Some worked in bronze, copper, or gold, or traded with Asians, Europeans, and other Africans. Some were farmers or herders and others were musicians, priests, and royalty. But now, kings and commoners were packed into narrow holds of foreign ships. While their homeland was still in sight, men and women took every opportunity to rebel. We shackled the men two and two while we lie in port and in sight of their own country, for tis then they attempt to make their escape in mutiny, reported a captain in 1693. We always keep sentinels upon the hatchways and have a chest full of small arms ready loaded, constantly lying at hand, together with some grenade shells and two of our quarterdeck guns pointed on the deck and two more out of steerage. There were many desperate efforts to rebel and return home while the ships were in sight of the African coast. A Dutch slave ship, anchored in Africa's Gulf of Guinea around 1699, had to battle African captives who, unknown to any of the ship's crew, possessed themselves of a hammer and broke all their fetters in pieces. The Africans came above deck and fell upon our men. The victory was interrupted when a French ship and a British ship arrived. The combined foreign force killed 20 and drove the Africans below decks. In 1734, Samuel Waldo owner of the Africa, commanded his captain and crew to place many armed guards and put not too much confidence in the women and children lest they happen to be instrumental to your being surprised, which might be fatal. In 1757, natives from shore attacked several slave vessels in the harbor and liberated their friends and relatives. Two years later, on the Gambia River, when 80 Africans rebelled, a wounded captain fired his gun into the ammunition room and the ship exploded. A crewman aboard a New England ship anchored off the African coast reported, the Negroes got to the powder and arms at about three in the morning, rose upon the whites, and after wounding all of them, ran the vessel ashore and made their escape. Slavers knew they carried the most dangerous cargo in the world. In 1776, Edward Long characterized Africans as wolves or wild boars who committed many acts of violence, murdering whole crews, destroying ships when they had it in their power to do so. Captives were carefully guarded and heavily armed crewmen stood ready to crush rebellions. Captains brutally enforced Captain William Snellgrave's advice in 1727 that no one that killed a white man should be spared. Sometimes, captives found or made weapons. Aboard the British vessel Don Carlos, Africans made knives, pieces of iron they had torn off our forecastle floor, and struck at a crew already weak from disease. Guns saved the whites, reported one. We stood in arms, firing on the revolted slaves of whom we killed some and wounded many, which so terrified the rest that they gave way. To keep prisoners weak, desperate, and quiet, food and water were cut. To reduce resistance through terror, captains ordered public executions at sea and torture of any who appeared rebellious. The resistance did not end. To keep them in good physical condition after so many hours in chains below decks, Africans were brought on deck each day for what Dr. Thomas Trotter called Dancing the Slaves. With guns trained on them, they were prodded to dance and sing. Captives gave voice to familiar music to express their deep longing for home and establish a bond among the many tongues. A British doctor on the young hero wrote, They sing, but not for their amusement. The captain ordered them to sing, and they sang songs of sorrow. Their sickness, fear of being beaten, their hunger, and the memory of their country are the usual subjects. Another doctor at night heard... howling melancholy noise... expressive of extreme anguish. An African woman explained her people... had awakened after dreaming of their own country... to find themselves in a slave ship. The men and women cried... which meant... we are dying. Whether they were watched carefully or casually treated badly or well. Africans wanted most to return home to freedom. In 1727, one British captain thought a more charitable and friendly approach might win cooperation from his human cargo. For nine days, he joined Africans at mealtime, sitting on deck, eating with them out of the small bowls. On the tenth day, reported a crewman, they beat out his brains with the little tubs, Europeans mistakenly assumed that their captives had no knowledge of navigation, and once at sea, would have to accept their fate. But some 150 recorded rebellions at sea marked the centuries of the slave trade. In 1701, there was a shipboard revolt in which 28 Africans were killed or left overboard and drowned themselves in the ocean with much resolution, showing no manner of concern for life, reported a white crewman. In 1730, about 96 Africans aboard the Little George slipped out of their chains and overpowered the crew. When some armed crewmen hid in a cabin, they were left alone, their door guarded. The black rebels concentrated on sailing back to Africa, which they accomplished in nine days. Two years later, Africans slew the captain of the William, set the crew adrift, and also returned home. Women, allowed more freedom on deck and at night, were at times able to play a key role in mutinies at sea. In 1721, a woman aboard the Robert, off the coast of Sierra Leone, served as a spy for a Captain Tomba, who led a revolt. She sounded the signal, and with Tomba and another man, killed two of the crew. Tomba, the unknown woman, and the mutineers were overwhelmed by crewmen with muskets. Captain Philip Drake, a slaver for 50 years, said, Slavery is a dangerous business at sea as well as ashore. But the transatlantic trade, fueled by its staggering profits, continued despite its rebellions and despite the rights of man promised by the American and French revolutions. It was not outlawed by nations until the early nineteenth century. Africans arrived in the New World weary, undernourished, and sometimes racked with disease. Many had suffered disabling injuries, and some were near death. Recalled Charles Ball, more than a third of us died on the passage, and when we arrived in Charleston, I was not able to stand. It was more than a week after I left the ship before I could straighten my limbs. Most Africans were not sent to North America directly. They were put through a seasoning process in the West Indies which taught them the language, religion, and demands of their captors. A third died, resisting the process of seasoning. Only a year after the first Africans walked down the gangplank, in Hispaniola in the West Indies in 1502. Governor Nicholas de Ovando reported that they were fleeing to Native Americans and could not be recaptured. King Ferdinand of Spain, convinced of terrible danger, ended the slave trade. But economic considerations soon overrode fear, and the business reopened. Slave rebellions erupted on the Caribbean island of Hispaniola in 1522, in South Carolina in 1526, in Puerto Rico in 1527 and 1533, in Panama in 1531, Mexico City, 1537, Havana, 1538, Honduras, 1548. After the Mexican revolt, the slave trade was again banned by Spain for eight years. In 1542, an archdeacon informed authorities in Hispaniola that no slave is reliable, and they have more freedom than we have. Four years later, a report claimed 7,000 had liberated themselves, each with spears they had stolen from fallen Spaniards. No one dared to venture out unless he was in a group of 15 or 20 people, it said. We lived in constant fear, admitted a Spaniard. Europeans tried to end resistance. Dogs were trained to hunt runaways. Rebels or escapees were branded or tortured. A death penalty hung over anyone who aided runaways or rebels. Thousands of fugitives, or maroons as they were called, survived in strongly defended colonies located in distant remote regions. Their armies challenged the foreign invaders, and their farmers and traders competed with Spain's. In 1545, maroons in Hispaniola turned down Spain's offer of peace, saying they could not trust Spaniards. The next year, a Spanish court announced that maroons had become so potent a force that platters only dared issue gentle orders to slaves. During the 17th century, the Republic of Palmares, a maroon settlement of 10,000 in northeastern Brazil, prospered. Its soldiers drove back a dozen Dutch and Portuguese armies sent to demolish it by fire and sword. In Palmares and in the slave huts of the Americas, black and red people met and married. This biracial history is captured in the sacred legends of the Saramaca people, dating from 1685, of Dutch Guiana, now Suriname. The African leader of the Saramacas, Lanu, was a slave who ran to the woods after his wife was slain. According to Saramacca legend, Wamba, the forest spirit, appeared. And Wamba came into Lanu's head and brought him directly to where some Indians lived. These Indians welcomed him and gave him food. And he lived with them there. When Lanu's younger brother... Ayako fled slavery. Lanu found him and saw that he had been well taken care of by the Indians, that he had done well there. He, too, found many things to eat there. Native American aid for Lanu and Ayako symbolizes the rebirth of Saramaka people beyond the eyes of their foes. It also describes a common alliance forged by Africans and Indians, Captain John Stedman spent years as a mercenary for the Dutch and the Guianas. His deadly enemies were the maroon descendants of Lanu and Ayako. In 1776, he wrote, The Negroes are spirited and brave, patient in adversity, meeting death and torture with most undaunted fortitude, their conduct in the most trying situations, approaching even to heroism. Daily Toil, Perilous Struggle. Chapter 2.
1: Okay, um, that concludes the reading. And uh, However, I do want you to be aware that the Gifts of Freedom podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of the spoken digital audio entertainment and information and they have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at audiopodcast.com backslash back Black History, you can get a free audio book and a one month trial for the service. And maybe you can pick up on some books such as Wrapped in Rainbows, The Life of Zora Neale Hurston. This book is by Valerie Boyd. Very good read. Uh, Another book you might find there is The Prince of Jockeys, The Life of Isaac Burns Murphy, First Black Man to Win the Kentucky Derby Horse Race. That's by ex-football player, Tillam McDaniels III. Again, supports the gist of freedom uh, by going to audio audiblepodcast.com back, uh, backslash black history and sign up for and get your free audio book and a one-month trial of service. Uh, and maybe you'll find something there by uh, William Seymour, biography of the black man that launched, launched the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. 1906, and uh, he's considered the father of the American Pentecostal movement. Um, And also, you can download this program and all our podcast programs at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. And again, I apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, We're going to edit that show. And, again, you can download that at iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. And let me see if we have anything queued up right now. Um, And don't forget to go to audiblepodcast.com backslash history. To get your free audio book and a one month trial of the service. And uh, we really encourage you, our listeners, to support the gift of freedom by checking out. Okay, and right now I'm going to say good night to you. My name is Preston Washington, coming to you from Kansas City, Missouri. I want to thank you for. Uh, being with us this evening here on the gist of freedom and uh, We shall see you uh, Sunday same place here Coming to you from Kansas City, Missouri and New York and New Jersey and All points east west north and south. Good night everybody.